It's very strange. It's been uh, six months since I started this podcast. 33 episodes. 30, uh, uh, th- all right, so 33 regular episodes. Three footnote episodes. One prologue. So I guess that's uh, 37. I don't know. I don't have this written down, guys, because I'm not good at this. I'll tell you how long I've been doing this podcast. I began it just before I became unemployed, and now I'm wrapping it up just in time for good old Donald Trump to make sure that my unemployment benefits are running out. I have no income. Isn't that fun? Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it is. uh, It's crazy, the fact that we got here. So today, what we're going to do, you know, last week we had Tim Eastwood on, very popular episode, and we did 936 to 981, the final pages of the book, but those of you in the know must know, that is not the end of the book. Now, many people have said, well, you got to reread it, that's where all the details are, and I said, no, please, uh, but some other people were nice, and i be like, you'll get most of it in the first 30 or so pages. So that's what we have today, part 33, the end, I can't remember where the last episode was, 33 or 33, but yeah, it's the end, uh, pages 1 to 31, and since the end is the beginning, it seemed only appropriate that I brought back from episodes 1 and 2 respectively, Dan Ostrov and Steve Clark, which... I'm so glad to have these guys on. I began my journey with them, and uh, they had a lot to say, and they wanted to know overall, what did you think? Can you can you still say you hate Infinite Jest? And I say, you're going to have to listen to find out. Follow me on all the things at Jesse Dram, at Mr. Jezico on YouTube. I still need to get that switched. Jessica was a nickname. It's a mixture of Jesse and Jericho, as in Chris Jericho, which gives me the entirely unrelated. Uh, my yesterday was ruined by a famous professional wrestler, Brody Lee, a.k.a. Luke Harper, guy only seven years older than me, who was you know wrestling brutal dog, dog collar matches a few months ago and just died from some lung issue out of nowhere. Very sad. Makes me want to go to a doctor. If only I had any income. Anyway, that's all right. He's looking out for the working class. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm just rambling here. Let's be done with it. So it's the final episode. Tune in next week as we rebrand ourselves to the Kill Your Gods podcast. We will be having two regular episodes. Give you an idea what's to come. And then we'll be getting back into our comfort zone. Uh, The next two episodes next week I will have with Aaron Bell. We will be discussing the film Napoleon Dynamite. So if any of you want to go and punish yourselves and watch that movie, I believe it's on Stars. That's what I'll be doing. Or watch it on DVD, I guess. I don't know. I'm not your father. I can't tell you what to do. The week after that, we'll be doing one of 
multiple series to come, I hope, on uh, pop punk. Yes, good old, good old. Hey, have you ever heard this? You've heard pop punk, my friend. So my friend Joe Garifo, he is a comedic actor, been in a lot of things. He is also a claymation producer. Can't say anything right now, but there's a major project that he is working on that I'm going to try to weasel my way in that uh, hopefully we'll see Christmas next year. And the only hint I will give you is uh, Snoochy Boochies. I didn't say anything. That's all. I just jinxed this whole fucking project. But that'd be cool if that would happen. He's going to come on and talk pop punk with us. And then after that, for the next five episodes, all you people that have been asking for it, The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pinchon. Uh, Like I said, we're going to mix it up. I still, books brought me to the dance. I want to keep going with books. It might get to a point one day where like every other episode we'll do an entry into a book. I wouldn't mind doing longer books that way. It's like, guys, the problem with Infinite Jest is it was just, it took me six effing, why did I say effing? Fucking, 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 fucking. Six, 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 fucking, fucking, fucking months to do this entire book. And I just don't want to commit to another project that long. So maybe if I split it up in between, I don't know, we'll figure it out. I know there's some stuff in there. Somebody wants me to do Ready Player One. Um, I don't know, I have a whole list of these books. I don't need to get into it now. So for now. The final episode of I Hate Infinite Jest. Thank you guys so much for all your support, for sharing, liking, subscribing. I'm definitely terrified I'm going to lose all of you as I try to pivot into other things. But sometimes birdie boys gotta fly at the nest. It's genuinely been a pleasure getting to know you guys in the David Foster Wallace community and the Infinite Jest community. And uh, thanks for letting in this dork to do a little ribbon and, you know, joshing around and playing some songs for you guys. It, it actually has been a very, very honorable experience. And uh, I thank you for that. So let's get to it. For the last time, I hate Infinite Jest. Episode 33, the end, pages 1 to 31 for a second time, and I am here with the two who started it all, from episodes 1 and from episodes 2 and then others whenever I needed him in a pinch, we have Dan Ostrov and Steve Clark. How you doing, guys? Good. Great. Yeah. Do you ever, did you ever think we would see the end of this? <laughs> no well, <laughs> it's the end of the tour if you will right <laughs> yes but it's a cyclical book i mean so we you know we could just start back over again and then uh redo it yeah no we're doing the first 30 pages and that's it i <laughs> that was the first thing that made me feel okay about re- so once everyone's like you gotta read a second time you gotta read a second time like but i don't want to and then somebody gave me the little like if you read the first 30 pages you're gonna get the gist of it it's like i can do that so mm-hmm. Um, so yeah thank you guys so much for doing this again because as I've said multiple times without you I don't think I would have started this podcast it was uh, through repeated arguments with both of you about this goddamn book 
that I decided <laughs> to finally tackle it. No, there's a girl I'm talking to, and uh, we were talking about books, and she's like, "What's your favorite book?" And I was like, "I don't want to talk about it." It's like I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to bring it up. I know it's. Uh, I'm embarrassed at this point. I'm. I'm very self-aware of the, the, the opinion around the book. So right, yeah. right. Just she'll be like, oh no, want an infinite jest guy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Can we cut this date short? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what's your favorite book? Um, I don't read. There, yeah, there was there was actually. Sorry to waste time here, but there was a guy who came out with this story a couple of years ago when Trump got elected that he was on a date and the date was, he said the date was going great. And then the girl asked him who he voted for and she ended the date when he said Trump. And I could see like something similar happening with infinite jest. Like, <laughs> like, Oh, it's fantastic. Like we were connecting. And then he said he reads David Foster Wallace. And I was like, get yeah. me the fuck out of here. I wish he just said the art of the deal. <laughs> 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 oh god i i would love to see a mashup between the two of the art of the deal rewritten in the style of infinite jest with the with the end notes like right <laughs> you could you could make that work a little bit guys yeah. before i get too far um give us your social media tell us what you're working on where can our people find you out there all right um so let's see uh my instagram is at lord byron mcgregor and um, what am I working on? Um, I recently, uh, actually last night, I uh, wrestled Lemare Lee Ooh. Um, at, uh, I believe it was at Lemare Lee, uh, three rounds of jujitsu. And I won the first round. I was feeling pretty strong, pretty confident. Like I was just going to take it. And then, and then, and then Lemare went beast mode. Uh, and he, he figured he, 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 uh, he took the second two. Um, and I spent, I spent a good amount of time under, underneath Lemaire's 200, 270 pounds of mass. Uh, yeah. So for those of you out there who are unfamiliar, somehow in this time of COVID in the Philly comedy scene, an underground fight league has developed out of fucking <laughs> nowhere. And I wish I was joking about any of that, but I am not. Um, <laughs> Wow, that that means this is uh this is Lemaire's second battle because before yeah. he was up against Naeem. Right. Lemaire's a victor. He's he's two and oh right now. Damn. I yeah. feel like I could take him despite having way less training than either. Oh of dude, be careful. I mean you could if you want, I'm a, I, if you want I'm a, match, he'll I'm accept a, I'm, it. Look, I'm a bigger boy. Like you were you are. You, you were in pretty good shape for your your size naeem is kind of wiry but i feel like i have the same proportions as lemaire just stretched out a little bit in either direction because lemaire is kind of a big boy he is yeah he's a he's a good wrestler though um mm -hmm. like I, i'll give that to him i mean you know there's a lot of scrambles and, and he's just really good at kind of getting you locked up and then mm -hmm. sort of rolling and ending up on top he's and, got kind of like a, a chubby gator thing going yeah, <laughs> and he's hard. It's hard to grab, you know, because his neck is like, you know, I was kind of going for chokes and stuff, and you can't get a choke on Lemaire's neck. You can't. It's like I'm trying to find an arm bar or something. You can't get those like huge arms, and and then he just and he's good at like just getting his weight like on you and and really like pressing it down. Um, but you know, I mean, it, it would be a good match, you know, because uh, you're definitely closer to his weight. What what are you about like two twenty, two thirty? 
I'm about 2.30, a, l- a little closer to 2.35 after okay. uh, not recovering from Thanksgiving properly. <laughs> yeah, so Lemaire's like 2.70, so you are a little closer to him. There's there's no way I can make it happen during COVID with how uh, on lockdown the girl has me, but eventually, yeah. 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 Although, yeah. Le- Le- Lemaire will be in shape by then. I've been so- It's funny. I've known Lemaire to lose weight two ways. One is in the professional wrestling ring. And two was like jumping on trampolines at Sky Zone. He's the only person I know who gets in shape through like childish whimsy and fun. But, uh, S- Steve, what are you up to? Where can we find you? What are you working on right now? Uh, Steve Clark Low on Twitter, uh, Steve O Clark on Instagram, Steve Clark on Facebook. Um, the, the biggest thing I'm working on is I'm. Um, are I, you also fighting Lamar Lee? I wish. Um, <laughs> I want someone to fight. Uh, Check out Lamar's podcast, Alt Black. It just came back and it'll only be here for a week before they give up again. Sorry, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The biggest thing I'm working on is I have a, uh, uh, I'm working on it sort of a one man show that's been pushed back and pushed back because of COVID Mm. um, about like death and suicide and depression. Um, So it's going to be super fun. that's fun. <laughs> yeah. So, but um, I've I've other little things, you know, here and there. But yeah, that that's about it. Okay. Okay. So, let's talk about what we're here to talk about. I have completed Infinite Jest. Um, <clears throat> I've I've settled on it a little bit, but I got to be honest. As soon as I read those last few pages, my immediate thoughts were, "Fuck this book! I have <laughs> wasted six months." <laughs> I feel nothing right now, and uh, so you don't like the end it, that it ended with Gately in, like, in the throes of addiction. Here is what I don't like about it: is for me the only point where the book starts coming together is when after planting all these seeds in what looks to be haphazardness around the scope, the map, if we want to be clever. Uh, the map of infinite jest mm-hmm. it first really got appealing to me when he started pulling those cords and we started seeing that world like the the, the listener can't hear i'm doing like slowly bringing my fingers together mm-hmm. like everything's coming together and for me that was the excitement of it but for me the ending felt like finally the tips of your fingers are touching and then he just <laughs> dropped all the strings and said have fun figuring it out yourself later skater bye and just walked away. I felt he completely dropped any promise he was working towards. And yeah. uh, sorry, so, I, I, I have another point about that, but it leads to a bigger point. So I'll wait. That's that's interesting because it ties into what I want to talk about. If that's all right, a little okay. bit. So like, I really like what you said, and I think like there's a lot of accuracy to that, and I can see the frustration, like the first thing I want to talk about is like just in general, like that I want to make sure I bring up what he's trying to do. Right. Like, I don't know if you know about his career at all, but like before this book, it was very um, like, look how smart I am type of stuff. Like, and I get that this book does not seem different from that, 
but it really is like he is attempting to make art that connects with human beings rather than just like look how smart david foster wallace is and he can't really get away from that right well so, yeah because it's definitely while he's trying to get away from that the book is definitely not not look how smart i am yeah no like, you're right, still you're, there yeah it's like it's like an it's like inescapable right but he's trying to do something like meaningful to other humans rather than just like this is cool look at these cool tricks i can do it's like let me connect with with people and let me give them like a meaningful artistic experience and i think the thing that's cool about this book and i think the thing that people like me who like it like about it is that and i think this is true of a lot if not all good literature is that it teaches you how to be a better reader like it encourages you to to do new things, to investigate. Like you're not just sitting back and receiving it the way you would most entertainment, right? Like you have to be an active part. You have to be actively engaged in the process of figuring this book out. You can't just sit back and take it back and let it happen to you, right? Like you need to make some decisions on what you think happens. You need to make some connections. And so it's like making you work for a better experience. Like the same way that in Plato's dialogues, there's like levels to it where like if you if you dig deeper, you can get more out of it. Like when Socrates is sitting under a plane tree, like for some reason, like that means, I, I don't remember exactly why, but the, the, the words are connected, like Plato, plane tree, so that that's actually Plato speaking and not Socrates. So like there's like there's like you can enjoy it just reading through it once, but I think you can get more and more out of it. You can get a deeper experience if you engage more fully with it. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, Dan, you got anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I, I I mean I do. I I I at first kind of felt I I felt like you felt in that you know, we're used to, we're used to stories that kind of wrap everything up. Like he's got these two main mm -hmm. characters, you know, and all these side characters, but you feel the whole time, like they're, they need to come together, right? They're going to come together. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be like the conclusion of the book. And, and, and we are kind of used to things being wrapped up in like a nice, nice package. So, so at the, at the end when, uh, you know, Hal and, and, and Don don't actually meet each other. It, it, it was sort of like, oh, wait, it's, it's over? Like, mm -hmm. that, like it didn't, it, he didn't conclude it. You know, and then, it, and then I mean, like what we'll do is like talk about the first 30 pages, you know, and so, uh, you know, and, and I remember when, when we did our first podcast sort of talking about how there's like these answers in the first, maybe not even you call them answers, but like clues in the first 30 pages mm -hmm. that take, that take place a year later that, that aren't, aren't really conclusion, but, um, you know, allude to some conclusions or some, some things that might've happened. Right. And I, I like, I mean, I, I, I didn't, you know, after thinking about it for a while, I, I guess I didn't have as much of an issue because, I, I often go back to the idea of like Star Wars being the best. The Star Wars is like by far the best of the Star Wars or the, uh, 
not Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back is by far like the best mm-hmm. of the Star Wars, you know, series of any of the any of the nine movies mm-hmm. because you know the way it's able to it starts in the middle of the story and it ends in the middle of the story, mm-hmm. and so there's no which is like life. It's like you know there's there's no conclusions, there's no big finales, there's no like everything gets wrapped up. It's like things start in the middle of action and they end in the middle of it. And so I think that's kind of how okay. he wanted to have his story created is like, there isn't a big, you know, you expect there to be like a big conclusion to this, but the story just goes on. Right. Yeah. That, uh, I, I definitely like that aspect of it to a certain degree. Let me, let me be clear. I was giving my, uh, my initial feelings upon completing it. Although right now I think I'm getting to a point now where I'm realizing like, I'm I'm kind of letting it go letting go of what I was hoping it would be and I'm kind of accepting it for letting it be what it is cuz mm-hmm. in that in that exact moment it's like you know guys all this has been set up and it just got fucking dropped because obviously I was projecting where I wanted it to go um <laughs> and I know like uh, I think a lot of it just doesn't make sense like uh, <clears throat> I think there's also something about narratively like I like open-ended things in some ways like uh like I think the ending of the thing for example is is an open-ended thing where we don't the end of the thing is an open-ended thing what the f- who let me buy a microphone um, <laughs> but yeah stuff like that it's just this one was so, I've read so much about the analysis of this book and after going back and rereading some of it and reading a bunch of things on like what you can expect the second time around I'm seeing a lot of grasping at straws because I mean, while the information is there in the beginning, like, you know, flat out in the first chapter, like I remember uh, John Wayne watching in a mask while me and Donald Gately dig up my father's head. Like, yeah, it's it's there. But then people have to people are filling in so much in between that. I read so many things in this last week. About how, like, so uh, once Otis Lord leaves the hospital, there's an empty bed, and then Hal is brought into there next to Gately, and then Joelle comes in, and she's like, hey, I kind of know you, and then they get together, and then they go to Quebec, and people are putting all this together based on a sentence, which, right. by the way, without which, I would absolutely think that final chapter was Don Gately dying. That is 100% what I would think that was. I know everybody's like, oh, well, it's a rebirth, like... You would think the rebirth had something to do with his sobriety, but his sobriety does not occur yet in that narrative. His sobriety occurs out of fear after accidentally killing Duplessis. The Donald Gately who woke up on that beach still went on to be a fuck up and, you know, kill somebody. He was not at his rock bottom, but everybody portrays this as if he's born, you know, naked on the Elysian sands and is reborn a different man. Like, I don't read fucking any of that. I would just think he fucking died, if not for, again, a few random sentences at the beginning, which we have to fill in the bulk of it. Like, you I would saw think somebody... He died, you would think he died in the hospital? In the hospital, because he doesn't really seem to be showing any... It seems to be from infection. He doesn't show any signs of being be- of uh, improving, it seems. And then the last thing we spend with him is him being overwhelmed in this weird, like... It feels like the... It, it feels like the chemicals flooding the brain of a dying man. He's remembering 
he's remembering what happens to Fackelman, but it sounds so weird and over the top that it's mixed with other things. Also, he is foreseeing the thing with Hal, which hasn't exactly happened yet, which makes you wonder whether that's actually happening or whether it's the Wraith projecting it onto him in some kind of way. And then he, he just kind of blips out in this miasma orgy of violence and drugs and then wakes up alone on a field, in, on the sand. Yeah. So here's the thing that like, I think is maybe kind of interesting. Maybe this is cool, maybe it's not. We can all agree the book is about entertainment, right? To yeah. some degree. Okay, so like various forms of entertainment. And like, Jesse, you might disagree with this, but like the book itself is a form of entertainment. Right. Okay. So I guess like coming back to the beginning, what we're seeing is like what he's diagnosing America with is this like addiction to entertainment and like addiction is entertainment, so on and so forth. Right. So like the literal problem of how getting, so what I think happens, what I, I think, I think he sees he, he sees the movie that his father wants him to see, that his father made for him. Whether or not it's that or the more common conception of him taking, ending up taking the drug by accident or whatever it was, um, which I think is fine. Like, I think either one works. Um, so, like, he's going to the, like, in, in the beginning of the book, they're going to get the antidote to whatever it is that happened. So like that antidote, like why are they digging up his father's body? Because it has the master copy of Infinite Jest in there. Is it for, you know, healing the country? Is it for healing how? Like, what is it for? So then the question becomes like, well, what is David Foster Wallace saying is the antidote to this addiction to entertainment that America has? Our, and that's what I, fa our father's decomposing skulls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it might be that. Um, so like, yeah. So I'm curious, like, what do you, what do you think? So like, if he's saying America is addicted to entertainment or, you know, we're entertained by addiction, whatever it is, like, is he offering a solution? Like, is there, is there no. an answer here? I, I, I do not think so, Steve. Uh, I'm also like, uh, again, I, I also think the message kind of falls apart in it, in a lot of that. I feel like the message – all right, let, 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 me, let me correct that. The message gets through, but for me, it's very who gives a shit. Like, what, it, what's it, the message? The message is, I mean, well, it's a bunch of things. It's irony versus sincerity. It's entertainment. But even that entertainment thing, I think, is a lot of projection on him. I think David Foster Wallace had a bigger problem with entertainment than – pretty much anybody who will read this book yeah but so if you could if you could i'm sorry to interrupt you you if interrupted you, me with an end but so <laughs> so you should apologize <laughs> footnote um so what was i gonna say fuck wait you what were you saying i was i, I had a no I had i'll a, just take i'll take this as your point being invalidated and uh no i had um, a, oh, I, oh oh here it is here it is um, if that's his, like, 
if that's his message, why not just say that message? Is it because he's long-winded, maybe? But, like, why not just say the thing that he wants to say? But like, why, did, why he, tell this no, story? No, no. He, he got that message across fine. He said it a million times in a million different ways. I would say to diminishing returns. But. If, that's, if that's the message, why not just say it? Like, why not just say it in an essay instead of putting it into a story? And I think that's because, like, that's part of the idea is, like, the answer to this, like, letting things happen to you is doing things yourself. Like, I think it's like, okay, I'm going to not just let this book happen to me. I'm going to happen to this book. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, like I'm not going to let this drug happen to me. I'm going to take control of this drug's effect on my body by dealing with addiction through AA or whatever it is. Like, not necessarily take control, but, like, I'm going to do something about it. So are you saying kind of, like, one of his purposes for, for writing this book may have been like to confront his own you know addiction to media i mean because i know he's he's talked in interviews he would talk about how he couldn't be in a room with the tv on and i i get that too if i'm in a room where there's a tv particularly if it's football like i can't have a conversation with a person at a bar if there's like a football game happening behind them and it's like and if i'm with my family i'm like i gotta have my back faced in the tv or, or I'm just going to be watching, you know, so I made like perhaps David Foster Wallace was like, I could write an essay about the pervasiveness of entertainment and how, you know, it, it, how kind of, you know, I think, he, I mean, he's writing this before really like social media is a thing, but it's kind of talking about like how sinister these screens are becoming in our lives. Um, and since, you know, since it's been written, they've become you know, more pervasive and more sinister, but maybe for him, it was his way of like, maybe if I write this whole narrative about it, it will actually help me deal with my own addiction to it. That's pretty neat. I like that a lot. Thanks. <laughs> I think that's a, I think that's a really neat take on it. I think for him, like definitely like, it seems like writing is something that helps him deal, helped him deal with that, you know? Like, yeah. the difference between, like, him, like, he kind of grew as a writer into this person who, like, wants to make actual art, you know? Like, versus, like, the broom of the system, like, oh, this is technically very cool, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, like, the sentence, look how, look how intelligent these sentences are, but not necessarily, like, super meaningful. Oh, no. by the way, can I just say, I, when I went back to reread this, I also read the uh, foreword for the first time, which I believe is by uh, Dave Eggers. Yeah, yeah, or something. And even in that, I, I kind of forget what a sub-fandom this has of, like, real literary writers who's pretty much, like, pretty much like, the English language is poorer because it no longer has David Foster Wallace to string together these beautiful melodies of sentences and obscure terms and it's it's I, I, granted it's something i just don't have the appreciation for like i, I actually god i actually think his best writing like the sentences i like the best are in his essays but th- that's just mm-hmm. me personally i got you um i i want to get to oh god oh so 
the other thing to think about here is like he's coming out of this tradition of like what I think are kind of obnoxious postmodernists, like um, other than like Bartelme, who's brilliant. Like you've got like John Barth, like just like like oh like look you're reading a novel. This is a novel about a novel. Like and so he's sort of in this tradition that's like that maybe begins with Delillo but that's sort of trying to like step beyond that postmodernism. So it's like him, Franzen, uh, Eugenides, who are trying to offer their own new take on the novel. So it, 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 this wasn't what I wanted to talk about, but because you mentioned it right there, uh, I tried getting a discussion going on one of the subreddits and I was ignored because they hate me there. Rightfully so. Um, but uh one of the things that drives me nuts about this novel is I've heard so many times that it's about irony versus sincerity. And yet I feel like the method in the style in which it's written is so ironic. That postmodern thing, like there are numerous times in it where David Foster Wallace gives us the wink of like, you know, so-and-so wonders whether this was intentional or whether he was just a shitty editor. Like, does he not realize he's talking about himself there? Like sincerity is direct this book is not direct it is even if you like it this book is up its own it's not a snake eating its own tail it's a snake sticking its head up its own asshole and that drives me nuts that i feel like people i feel i don't mean this about you guys i don't mean this about any of my guests i don't mean this about any of my listeners from reading a lot of the analyses out there i think a lot of the people who read this book are nowhere near as intelligent as they think because they are missing huge swaths and just like repeating the company line. Like the amount of disingenuous people are like, it's not a hard book to read. Go fuck yourself. Like, well, if you don't like it, it must be because you're a cynic. No, it's because it's written so fucking obtusely and it wants me to make a part-time job out of this fucking thing. And I, I, uh, I find so much of the fan base really disingenuous because it's a lot easier for them to pat themselves on the back in the old Barry Horwitz saying like, I got this me, good boy, gold star magna cum loud. Yeah. I guess there is like a certain, you know, it, it has become something of like a status symbol uh, in certain, probably in certain literary circles. And I think that that is, yeah, you know, I, I, I can understand there is some frustration to that. Um, and certainly I think, you know, David Foster Wallace himself, even from the beginning got kind of frustrated with that idea. Like I, 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 you know, in one interview, he was talking about the New York times book review of his book and how, you know, that they, it was like that they, they wrote out like, Oh, like fantastic literature, blah, blah. And he's like, this was written. This came out the day after my book, was released there's just no way that the guy who wrote this could have read the whole book in a day uh -huh. like he wrote a review of the book after reading like 100 pages and you know and, and you could tell he was a little bit like annoyed by the praise mm -hmm. um well and, and obviously through the course of the book he talks about uh joi playing tricks on critics left and right yeah, yeah. so so I mean, like, it, I'm glad you brought this up because I think it brings up a lot of hot button topics. One of them being like, what's the difference between 
good art and entertainment and like just things that we consider classic entertainment because like you think about things that today like we would say like are high art like Shakespeare like back in Shakespeare's day it was it was a lot of it a lot of people thought it was smut you know like it was lowbrow it was for it was for the punters right so like there's that like the novel even like back in back when the novel was invented like it wasn't considered like a good use of your time to be reading it was considered like wasteful and like indulgent you know Mm -hmm. now it's like oh you're broadening your it's like the best thing you can do like oh my kid reads look at him he's reading it's like the best whereas like 300 years ago be like that child is indulgent don't let your kid you know so like Mm. i think about that in terms of today what is that today maybe it's like pro wrestling like we like everyone everyone hates on pro wrestling but like it's it's very entertaining Mm -hmm. it's like there's a lot of like effort put into it there's a lot of effort put into the storylines there uh, there is all right, I, I think I was trying to do my best to figure out what is the perfect intersection of where do entertainment and art, like when is it both most one and least the other? Yeah. I think I would actually pick professional wrestling for that. And it's something, it's something I would say about this book in general is that it is capable and at times extremely artful. Like I, I would say professional wrestling and... I know Ostrov's into it. Clark, are you into wrestling at all? I used to be. Okay. I used to do uh, like the on message boards. Like I would role play as X Pac. Uh, <laughs> like I would I would write speeches as X Pac. Oh, in, nice! In, in high school, yeah. See, I, I I was in some e feds where I did stuff like that. Unfortunately, yeah. I I got to it a little bit late, so like all the good guys were taken. I had to. I think Kurgan was my main guy. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's something that is. And it honestly, professional wrestling is something I've used a lot. What I'm going to do now that this podcast is done is I'm going to pivot. I'm going to change the name and it's going to be called Kill Your Gods because that's really the crux of what this whole thing is, is like love whatever you love. I love professional wrestling and heavy metal and it is unapologetically fucking stupid. It's well, yeah, capable well, of greatness. And I, not to say that this book is entirely stupid, but part of the thing that I got into this and called it I Hate Infinite Jest is that the people who loved it, it's not enough that they love it. It has to be beyond criticism. And David Foster Wallace has to be a martyr to modernity who was crushed by, crushed by a world that could not understand him. Again, people projecting their entire life's worth onto a piece of art. What do people hate about this book? They hate the exclusionary aspect that some fans bring to it, I think. And yeah. I think with like, like why do kids hate reading? Why do kids hate English class? I'm sorry. It's because like we teach them like, oh, this will be better for you rather than like, this is really entertaining. Like Jane Eyre is like a really like entertaining, like soap opera story. Like read it, like you're going to love finding out what happens. You know, it's, like, really, like, dramatic. I mean, I, again, I do think that's ignoring the fact, though, that the book itself is not very welcoming. It is, it is a chore straight out in the beginning because it's throwing it's, – it's, like – I don't want to say Jackson Pollock, but fuck it, I'll say Jackson Pollock. It's making little drips on a canvas, but, like, you have no, you have no sense of direction where you are or where 
any of this is yet. It's like if you take, it's like you take third graders and before they figured out their multiplication tables, you're throwing them into algebra. It's like, ah, oh, no, you'll, the rest will be filled in eventually. Like, but that's, I, I don't know. I don't think it's a very welcoming book at first, which I think flies in the face of the entire sincerity aspect. I mean, I guess I would kind of disagree with that. Like having, cause when I came to this, I I've tried to read gravity's rainbow, like three times mm-hmm. and usually get in about like, 200 i don't know if you ever tried to read gravity's rainbow which i made, have yeah you you have i haven't read it i've tried to read it yeah it, 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 it's on my <laughs> list one of the first books we're going to do after this is crying of lot 49 because which i read still, and yeah. i was like i don't i don't get it um but yes same. <laughs> i read i read uh v and and did like that and then i was like people are like oh gravity's rainbow is is like the one you got to read and uh, i and and it's it's you you can't like you can't read it it's just it's extremely difficult to read what i'm told about gravity's rainbow is like there are like very specific jokes that have to do with like 1930s french political cartoons that are like really good jokes if you know like the like inside but like Mm. who's gonna like right who's the audience now that's gonna get that about gravity's rainbow is he'll jump it'll be like two people having a conversation and then he'll just go into like in the middle of a conversation one of them will be thinking of a different scene that he was in you know as we do like yeah i mean you'll, you'll be talking to somebody but your, your your mind is somewhere else but he doesn't tell you that you're now in the scene like there's no there's no like you just kind of have to figure out from context like oh wait were like this same character that was having this conversation is now in this room with somebody else and this thing is happening but then every so often he jumps back to the you know to the original conversation but there's no context given that that is happening you just kind of have to like be like you know like go back and read it a few times and be like oh okay there's these people were talking then this person is thinking about this other situation he was in that relates to their conversation. And now they're back in the original conversation. And now he's back in like this other scene. And it's, it's just, and so when I came to like, when I came to, that that sounds exhausting. It is, it is. Um, And so when I came to infinite Jess, I was like, this is going to be like gravity's rainbow where you just, you can't, um, uh, or some of, you know, uh, Jack Kerouac's like later books, you know, after on the road that are, that are, he, you know, on the road was kind of stream of consciousness, but he he does that, you know, with like like the subterraneans where you can't make out who is who and which character is which. So mm. when I came to Infinite Jest, I was like, this is going to be like that. And then when it was like, oh, okay, actually there is like definitive characters. We know who's in each scene. They're they're like, yeah, it's actually mm. organized in a way that I can understand it. I I was like, okay, I I can I can actually enjoy this book because it's not it's not like gravity's rainbow where i have to like reread whole sections three times to even understand which character is is talking at any given time yeah okay um so i'm gonna get into some of my notes here typically i do that much sooner but i don't have that many notes um this is literally just things we missed the first time in the first 31 pages so (coughs) 
I'm going to storm through this. I guess interrupt if you have anything to say. So obviously Hal is in a room surrounded by heads and bodies. Uh, so at first when I read this, I read this as an allegory of like every super smart kid that felt misunderstood by the world. And I thought it was kind of lame. Now, I, after reading the book, I now understand that Hal has gone through a big change. And over the course of the book, we see that he can communicate, but is essentially empty inside. Uh, frequently called a boy who is just trying to impress his mother, but without any inner motivation. After ingesting DMZ on his toothbrush, possibly, on page 860, he begins rapidly reversing. And now we meet Al on page one, full of internal feelings and opinions, but now completely incapable of communicating with the outside world. Um, even though I understand in the narrative, I do still think the, it is an allegory of the super deep genius completely misunderstood. And I think it's pretty dumb, even if it fits within the story. Um, one thing. And Wait, I actually, so do you think it's the opposite? Like, do you think he's reversed that now he can't communicate, but he's more, more full of a character? Yes. I feel like, you know what? It's curious because uh, it's going to come up in a second when we talk about the professional conversationalist is it I, I feel like people forget that part where it it seems like Hal was honestly like precocious and a little weird but not that fucking bad off as uh himself thought he was he because in that thing with the professional conversationalist he reads to me as a regular if not strange kid who it, 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 JOI is himself is interpreting it as like this kid doesn't say anything there's anything on the inside where it seems to me way more that himself just doesn't know how to listen to him so but sorry jumping ahead yeah for me it really feels like in the book itself he is like paralyzed by thought he's almost a little bit like Orin in that he's able to kind of put on the facade but inside he is just incredibly bundled up and afraid to do anything or indecisive and now as we see him in the beginning he's having conversation like i'm deep i'm fine i'm a good person inside i've read this i am full of motivation but when he the world sees him trying to express that they hear you know or whatever that's my interpretation of what he sounds like yeah yeah i think um I think that's on point. I mean, I think like he's between these two worlds of like Orin who's dead inside and Mario who's like just completely goo prone and like just wears his heart on his sleeve. Like Hal is close, probably closer to Orin in the beginning um, and maybe closer to Mario by the end. See, all right, hold on. You think Orin is dead inside? I actually... I didn't read that much from Oren, which, uh, but by the way, uh, real quick, does anybody reading a lot of analysis, a lot of people are saying Oren was the one sending out the, uh, the entertainment, which while I think there's enough hints to justify that does not match Oren's character at all. I think. What do you guys think about that? I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I guess I, I hadn't read that. I didn't know that. And it does seem like... Well, it, it, real quick, here are the solid hints people are sending out. In one of the times where he calls Hal, he's waiting in line at a post office. And even though Hal says, you hate snail mail. Um, and uh, the the cartridge that comes to the medical attache comes postmarked from Tucson. And that's pretty much what people are running with. <laughs> but, and also the thing at the end where it seems like while the AFR is after the Incandenza family, 
it seems like Oren is the main one they got, and they're subjecting him to some shit, which seems to indicate they think they can get something out of him. I think Oren's too dumb. Like, That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was too dumb, too unmotivated, like a guy who couldn't really, like, they tried to make it like, you know, uh, well, he was upset at Avril because her infidelities made himself kill himself. So now, and then there's a whole thing, like if himself stuck his head in the, uh, in, in the microwave oven, would that not have destroyed the cartridge in his head, if not his head entirely? Why did the cartridge end up in his head at all? I'm jumping ahead in these notes, but I'm super <laughs> frustrated. Um, here, you know what? We can, we can actually get to that when we get to that, because I still have it in here. But uh, yeah, Hal is... Um, sorry, Ostrov, I interrupted you and we ran away with... No, 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 it's fine. Keep going. There. But um, yeah, so it seems like through the course of the book, he is dealing with an internal crisis where he just too much anxiety, can't decide to do one thing or another, but is putting on a facade on the outside of a decent, you know, just a regular kid. He has friends, he's communicating, where now he seems to actually be full on the inside. <clears throat> um, just, just the first person um, inner thoughts we're reading are 180 difference from when we first, in like the last 200 pages, step in the first person narrative of Hal, where he's thinking like a robot, basically only now unable to communicate. Yeah, I think that it's really largely about, like, his dad wants to communicate with him. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I think that's why he's there. Like, his dad is like, what we see in that chapter, that chapter was supposed to be, David Foster Wallace initially made that the first part of the book, that, that uh, like, the, the very beginning was that professional conversationalist. Okay. And so I think like part of one of the big things that's happening in the book is his dad is trying to communicate with him. And the way that he ultimately does that is through like his ultimate attempt is by making this movie that's so entertaining um, that it kills you. Mm -hmm. Right. So like that, that's like, that's my interpretation of what he's, Maybe it's not even my interpretation. I just think it's what happens. Yeah, um, no, nah, I, I, I think that's pretty, that's like not really debatable. I think that's definitely why he made it. I still, I'm still arguing how much of that was actually necessary. Like how, how much was it that uh, the Incandenza boys are just this bad at communicating and how much of it is real? It, it reads to me like James is the problem with all of this. And he's reading a lot of problems that aren't necessarily as pronounced as he seems to think. I mean, I think like a lot of the, a lot of the book is, is father's inability to communicate with their sons. You know, Definitely. it's kind of like James and Cadenza like has his memories of like his father being an alcoholic and kind of watching his father degrade into alcoholism and this kind of spurring his, some of, you know, his own genius in terms of like, his inventions, I think it was like light refraction or, and then, and then his father has his own chat, like, you know, James's father has his chapter of being like a tennis champion and doing all this stuff to try to impress his father. Who's like totally uninterested mm-hmm. in his own, you know, his, like he, he like tries so hard to impress his father playing tennis that he like ruins his knees and can mm-hmm. no longer play. And so it's kind of this like, cycle of like an inability to communicate 
like fathers can't can't ever really speak to their son yeah yeah well it's like yeah i agree it's like exactly with what ostrop said it's i mean not only <clears throat> it's it's almost like oh this is what i would have wanted when i was a kid so this is what Hal will like you uh-huh. know and and james's dad doing the same thing with him and then you know james doing that to to Hal. and i think it's also like a neat part of this is like the hamlet arc of the story which is like a father trying to talk to his son mm-hmm. you know like a father's ghost trying to talk to his son right trying um, to send him on one last mission yeah Sorry, I thought one of you said um and was going to add something. <laughs> no, I think even though uh, okay. even though his dad doesn't, I mean, there's some jokes in the movies about how he's going to, like, how he's upset about his cheating wife, like, in, the, in mm. the filmography. But it seems like he doesn't really care what his wife does. Like, his wife seems to be sleeping with everyone. See, that, and- that, that, that's where it gets kind of confusing with the uh, entertainment being sent out because people have pointed out that he, uh, but, uh, you know what i'm going to skip ahead to the professional conversationalist thing are we i want to say so much about it so quick quick question that's probably not related to what you're talking about but are we supposed to assume that Oren was at some point in a sexual relationship or just molested by his mother i'm not sure where i stand on that the only explicit place that comes in is i think molly notkin talking to uh was it steeply i don't know molly notkin's getting interviewed no it was by uh tyne but yeah she's getting interviewed by somebody where she's given what she knows about the entertainment and i think she's the only one that says like oh he was probably fucking his mom or whatever um, well you get like he's not talking to her so it's uh, like something happened and then like he's also like that's what he's looking for in a partner is like just like his mom basically mm-hmm. like that's what he's looking for and not a partner like the he calls them what subjects, the subjects. Subject. yeah I, I i will say the one thing i did love at the very very end when uh we discover the swiss hand model is the femme fatale loria p and yeah. they're and now they're referring to Oren as the subject that was pretty <laughs> delicious yeah it's great. Yeah. Um, fuck. All right. Now, I take it back. I'm going to go back. We're going to stick with the order we were at here because there's other things that I want to get over. Um, something that hasn't come up in any of the analyses, which uh, immediately recontextualizes the beginning, is we see that Hal is applying to play tennis at a college, which now that we've read the book, we realize he must have had a pretty rough year because that's not what these academies are supposed to do the people who go to college are the fuck-ups who couldn't make the show right now but this is where that gets a little confusing to me is uh yeah hal admits here his transcript may have been dickied a little bit over the last year to get him over a rough patch so he's definitely had it last year i have to wonder though how would it be easier for somebody who now can't can't i feel like his new thing that he can't communicate with the outside world if anything i think that would make him less apt to go to school for tennis than to just be a professional tennis player. Like unless his ranking has just fallen so far, he can't qualify for that sort of thing. But like, 
his current condition he's in, he seems like he can play tennis just fine. It's everything yeah, it else he like can he's do. Really good at, he's still really good at tennis. Yeah. That is, that is odd. I mean, one of the, you know, the other, the other mystery is kind of they end, it ends at the academy where, uh, where, where the, um, you know, the, the wheelchair assassins are like showing up at the academy. Right. And oh, I, I and wish, the way they, I wish like, we could have seen more of that. Cause that yeah, was and it's like, once they get there, you're dead. Like right. once, once they show up, you're, you're done. And so it's, you're like, Oh no, they, they're showing up. You know, somebody's somebody like makes a comment like, Oh, it must be the wrong tennis team. Cause they're all in, in mm-hmm. wheelchairs and <laughs> it just cuts out. And then, it, and then it like, jumps at your head where apparently everybody's fine and it's like wait these guys showed up these like you know unstoppable assassins Mm -hmm. and there is some indication that something went down because there was the noted thing that as this rumor spread in the locker room it actually died out later in the day because everybody who left the locker room to go check for themselves did not return ah (laughs) so but um it's pretty cool yeah. So yeah. Um. So right here we get like the big thing that's like the gives us the end. Um, when Hal is being strapped and taken into the after freaking out in the dean's office, Hal says that he's only ever been to an emergency room once before about a year ago. So we can assume he was acting. I'm trying to remember. Was he? Were people? St- obviously, he was like degrading at the end of the novel because people are starting like are you okay man you look like you've been crying and to him he's like i'm fine what are you talking about but it seems at some point either something maybe something happened with the afr or maybe he was acting so strangely they were like we need to get him to a hospital and so so at least right there like okay we know he was taken to a hospital if it's that same one geographically as Ennett, he could have ended up in the same hospital as gately and then the big paragraph, which Hal is thinking to himself while strapped to a gurney in an ambulance, he thinks of John Wayne wearing a mask who would have won this year's Whataburger, yeah, standing watching a mask as Donald Gately and I dig up the head of my father, James Oren, in Candenza. And that's really the only confirmation we have that that happened, is that Hal is saying it right there. Um, it seems like now like at some point everybody in his life like sort of like has been on his side like helping him get through whatever this crisis is mm-hmm. like his mom you know delin charles or tavis whatever um ct like everybody's there helping him um and they know like he's struggling um john wayne etc mm-hmm. i don't know like it it like it seems like they've they're aware that there's an issue and they're trying to help him through. I don't know. Hmm. Well, I mean, a, a lot of the analyses have well, pretty much all of them have John Wayne as some kind of spy for the AFR. Who? Yeah, um, I've heard that before too. Yeah, that they they try to set him up as a parallel of uh, Marat, where they're not sure, like like he's trying to convince them he's a, a, a triple agent or whatever. He's there to get information. But at some point in order to be helping Hal here, uh, the, the, the interpretation I've read by a few people is he's a spy center by the AFR. At some point he switches for reasons and he's helping Gately and uh, Hal dig up the skull. 
but is found out by the AFR and killed. Again, that might be somewhere else in the book. I think it was implied. Something well, they, also, did, they, they, they just keep saying he definitely would have won the Whataburger here. Definitely would have, even though we're at there, a time when that would have happened. Isn't there also a possibility that Hal's mom or that uh, Avril is connected to like these terrorist groups? That she's like, she's from Canada. Mm-hmm. Like, she might have married in Candenza because of his, his deal that he, like, they're, they're, like they're... Why, why else would she marry this guy? Mm-hmm. Like, she's hot. She's a hot academic. She sleeps around. Like, she mm-hmm. could have anyone she wanted. Why this aloof intellectual, because he came up with that, that, that fusion idea or whatever it's called. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, why, you know, why... Why him? And I think like, so part of that is there as well. I've heard that too. My question to that is like, we see so much of the AFR being like, how are we going to get to the family? How are we going to get to the family? Whereas you would think they would have a direct pipeline to the family if Avril was working with them. Then again, we know there's a lot of Quebecois shit going on. Not everybody necessarily on the same side team yeah i don't know if she was i I don't think she was with them i think she was maybe just like a different you know one of the other separatist groups Mm -hmm. Um, yeah because they're kind of like the most extreme right um even the point where they kill those other two brothers who are who are in like a different separatist group right right the antitois yeah okay um okay so going forth from that section we have Erdity's entire thing, which I understand like means a lot for like addictive people, and it talks to a lot of that and the obsession and the anxiety. Personally, it does nothing for the character of Erdity for me. Shines no new light. I don't care. I think we can all agree now, after reading this whole book, that fucking Wardeen Mama gonna be her hush had no point being in this fucking book. Would either of you like to put a defense there? I understand it 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 doesn't pay off later because it involves such a minor character of Clinette who we like just see a little bit during the Canuck fracas in um in the Ennett parking lot. But yeah, I don't for for such an egregious chapter that like is a very early on, like, yeah, I don't know what the fuck I'm reading thing, it really doesn't have it doesn't do a lot to justify itself later in the novel. No, but how many chapters in literature do you know that their their entire the entire chapter makes you cringe reading it? So that's I think that's the purpose, just to to cringe. It's cringeworthy. <laughs> well, I think it's that now. Honestly, I think if you probably read this when it came out, it probably would have been like, eh, yes, some some of them talk like that sometimes. Okay, like I don't, I think we read it now with a kind of like, but I really don't think that would have been a universal revulsion at the time. He wrote a treatise on hip hop at the time in America, which I imagine is just as cringeworthy to read. And I think some of that, like some of his take there is in the language. I think it's also comparable to the the Irish guy who gives the the talk about taking a, a solid shit for the first time. Mm. Like, I think he's trying to do the voice as accurately as he thinks possible, but it just comes out. Like, I think like you said, like it was like a really good way to put it, which was like just blackface. 
mm-hmm. like literary blackface. Um, yeah, so it just comes out sounding like blackface. Mm. Any thoughts, Ostrov? Um, yeah, I, 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 I would generally, I would generally agree with Steve. Um, you know, was he? Yeah, I mean, it's possible that was like a blind spot for David Foster Wallace too, and that he thought he was doing a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. of like getting getting the language well i i, I do think the other aspect the, the guy really again despite the sincerity aspect of this he doesn't really seem to know how to write anything but like academic white guys i think he does a good job at gately but at the same time it's like the only other black person who gets a lot of talks here is uh the guy who won't hug was that also erdity he who wouldn't hug him at the one meeting and, it's, I think it's, it might be Erdity's brother. Okay, but the the point is still it's like the only other time we really see a black character here. They are another like a a threat, you know. And that seems to be. And again, I'm not trying to cancel David Foster Wallace from Beyond the Grave, which I know sounds silly, but there are plenty of blogs trying to do just fucking that. I'm interested with the the work here, but uh, yeah, it doesn't really speak great, and it is. Again, I'm really not this guy, but it is kind of a bummer that, like, of everybody in the book, we never, with the exception of Joelle, we don't really spend any time looking at any of the women's thoughts or feelings. They all seem to be different shades to, you know, they they seem to mostly just be things for the men in the novel to react to. Like, I think we could have really spent some time in Avril's head without, you know, spoiling some of the mystery, I guess. There's a point at the in the end of the tour when the David Foster Wallace says like, who's reading the book? And he's like, it's mostly men, mostly white, like hyper-educated, like over-educated. So like that to me demonstrates an awareness of like, he knew the limitations of the voices in this book, mm-hmm. you know? And that's why you get it. Like it, it it's like a very bro it, it like the audience is very bro and there are some women who like it. Like you've had women on who like it. Um, maybe one woman who's like, I think you've had a couple. Yeah. yeah. Um, so don't try to put that shit on me. I book women on this show. This is, this is a diverse lineup. No, I'm not saying you haven't had, wi- <laughs> I'm not saying you haven't had women. I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I'm fucking with you. Steve. I'm saying women who liked it. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it just, the audience leans bro because of that. Right. And I, and I don't think that's a total condemnation. Like I, 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 it's that double-edged sword, which I think exists way more now than in previous art where it's like, Oh, there's no representation of uh, characters outside your background. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, you're, you don't know enough to write people like that. It's like, okay, so you, you want to not like me and you have every reason at your disposal no matter what for uh, and and anger for all seasons you got something to throw at me yeah mm-hmm. um okay so into the uh, professional conversation list which i think wraps this up again in this part at no point in this chapter does this sound at all like the distant preoccupied james ornan candenza we've met and spoken with the entire novel none of this guy seems like him 
at all, like, at no other point. And also towards the end, it sounds like he's trying to get dirt out of Hal about Avril, and he's telling his 10-year-old son that his mother's fucking everybody in sight. And this is also where he mentions the cartridge in his skull, which, how did it get there? Why would he do that? Wouldn't microwaving his own head destroy that? Was that maybe what he was trying to do? Uh, come to think of it, would microwaving your own head cause so much internal pressure that it would destroy your skull, even though they're digging it up later? I don't know. Um, there's also the weird little note here that uh, he writes out, this, like he offers Hal a soda, and we get like the onomatopoeic, like, you know, gurgle, gurgle of like opening the soda and drinking it, which like makes me wonder if maybe the section isn't supposed to be like a recording transcript since it has everything and it's all in quotes. I don't know. I've talked for a little bit now. You guys talk. Well, it's interesting. Um, uh, you know, and, and I, um, I, I recommend, and I think you listen to this is water. Mm -hmm. Um, and at one point, uh, David Foster Wallace, you know, who was obviously, um, thought a lot about suicide, um, and, and did eventually do it. And, and he was, and he talked about how often people who commit suicide will, will shoot themselves in the head. Kind of like, you know, talks about the brain as being like a terrible master, like yeah. a great servant, but a terrible master. And so I think, you know, this, this idea of, of, um, James and Kendeza like putting the cartridge into his brain and, and like this, you know, this entertainment kind of becoming this terrible master is him like returning to this theme of like literally putting like the terrible master into his own brain. Mm. And then like, he eventually like has like his, his method for suicide is to like microwave his head. You know, so I, I mean, I think that was just like kind of a thing that he really thought about and really, I would say, experienced a lot, too, in his own, you know, in his own life where he couldn't get away from his own brain. Really. Mm -hmm. OK. OK. Yeah, well, I think James and Candenza is a good. Uh, he's a good example of something that comes up with a lot of other characters especially the ones who we see their stories before they get to Ennett House, which is like this, you know, Gately's another one where it's like this idea of they are so deep in the throes of addiction that they either are, they're at this like fork in the road where they're either going to die and slash kill themselves or they have to do something extreme. Like they need a miracle. Mm -hmm. So like, there's this like this really like how are they going to continue this life of addiction they can't um versus okay well what are what's the alternative and for gately it's it's aa you know and so it's like james ankandenza never gets to that point he he dies like his his choice is death so it's like mm -hmm. Which is funny um, because we see him attempt the AA thing, but uh, I guess he can be read as kind of a mirror to Hal, uh, to Hal, to Don in a certain way, because Gately has obviously like started to believe the cliches at this point, got past cliches, whereas uh, himself we hear has could never get past that aspect of it. Like he just he could not 
he could not let his uh, intellect down and let that part into him to a certain degree. The thing about AA is it's not, it's not about who like works the hardest. It's about who takes direction, like mm. who's willing to take direction. It's almost like James is unwilling to give up control and Gately right. is. So mm-hmm. Gately is like, even though Gately struggles with the idea of a higher power, he's still like, I'm so fucked. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's going to help here, like, I, like I'm such a terrible director of my own life that I'm going to listen to these people who seem to at least have made it into their 80s. Like they're old and... Um, so I'm going to listen to whatever they tell me to do, even if it doesn't make sense. Even if I'm praying to a God who like just looks like a wall to me, you know? So it's like, he's willing to take direction from other people. Yeah. James Incandenza struggles with the idea of giving up control. Okay. Got anything to add to that? Ostrov? No, I, 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 I mean, it's, you know, I, I agree with that. I think, mm. you know, when he talks about the first time, he, you know, he just got down on his knees and prayed and he's like, it's not like you need to believe in a higher power. You just have to like kind of getting that, that act of being like, I'm not, I'm not in control. I, I just am going to pray. Cause I, there's nothing else for me to do right now. I'm, I'm yeah. I, I, I like that idea of daily okay. being willing to do that versus, you know, himself not being willing to. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, like I said, there's something about this section that we're still, it's, this doesn't sound like the James that we've seen throughout the rest of the novel. Like when Hal eats the mold, supposedly like uh, Avril's freaking the fuck out. My son ate this and himself and Mario are like almost watching from a distance and they're like trying to figure out how to frame it or light it. Where in here we're seeing him like really worked up as like this conversationalist and like, uh, the, the narrative confuses me here because like he also throws in um da, 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 da. oh yeah so himself says to how this is at the end when himself is talking to himself as hal is doing his own thing where uh, he says you know how don't don't you think you know somebody like me we would know about your family's involvement with m duplessis and luria p and himself says something about photos of a liaison that has since led to the deaths of an auto and paparazzo and a bavarian international affairs editor like what uh, his Hal's mother has had indiscretions with an Albertan bassoonist and 30 near Eastern medical attaches. Like this, do- this doesn't feel like the guy we see in the rest of the novel who pretty much just doesn't care at any point. It seems like he cares a lot and he's kind of freaking the fuck out here. And what the fuck were that paparazzo and Bavarian death? Like, I don't, they, they seem to be alluding to shit that we never that it never comes up. He does care. At, like, you, and you can tell because in the filmography, there's certain films that he makes at certain points in time that are about like cheating wives. Mm-hmm. So it's like very obvious that he's like dealing with that through making those films. Okay. And I think, I mean, James Incandesa doesn't have a whole lot of, first person dialogue in this book aside from this mm-hmm. there's i think like one other chapter where he's talking about his father mm-hmm. but it's like i feel like most of our understanding of him is you know through you know his sons and and 
and Avril like talking about him and talking about their like how they saw him. So I, I mean, I think there is kind of this interesting thing that happens in terms of like, you know, kind of getting back to the idea of like sons and fathers being able to communicate where the way a son will describe his father, you know, like if you, if you have a friend who like talks about their dad and like what their dad's like, and then you meet their dad, it's often like you meet a different person Mm -hmm. than you've been told about. Mm -hmm. You'd be like, Oh, my dad's like a huge fucking asshole. He's like, blah, blah, blah. And then you meet their dad and they're like a really like fun Mm -hmm. person. And, And it's like, it's not like one is wrong and one is right. It's just like, you know, the experience of like listening to James in his own words is different mm-hmm. than how Hal saw him. Okay. I, I might be coming around on this a little bit and think maybe this entire section is supposed to recontextualize a little bit because like I said, here to me, it almost seems like Hal is kind of normal and James is overreacting. But at the same time, you're right. This might be, uh, I hinted the fact that this does seem to be like a transcript because everything is so like, straight so maybe it does kind of give the illusion to the fact that like we see the entire uh book the big thing with the incandenses is they are incapable of listening to one another so it's quite possible we're seeing here that the entire fucking book like everybody fucking remembers this guy wrong because if we're seeing this in a very straightforward almost like uh security camera kind of way and this is how he's acting and he doesn't do it at any point i guess uh, it, it just throws uh, a lot of doubt on every other representation of him we see in the book. And I mean that in a good way, because that's interesting. As a side note, like sort of related, Mario's not his son, right? Yeah, I think, well, I just won't put out my opinion for a second. Ostrov, what do you think? Oh, I didn't. Um, yeah, I guess I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really know that. Um, I, I, yeah. So I, the, the the consensus I've read on time is on, online is uh, the father seems to be CT. We know yeah. Avril and CT are having oh, an affair. Yeah. I wonder how Hal knows that because apparently he does. Uh, towards the end of the book, it's revealed that Hal knows that John Wayne is fucking his mom. Right. I don't know how that happened. But, Doesn't um, he announce it when he when he like go when he takes the drug? John I don't. Think he, he doesn't straight up announce it. He just acts very out of character. And hops on the. It, it seems to indicate that like, um, like Avril supposedly takes him to the hospital and keeps watch over him the entire time. So it seems to be a little bit like she's reacting as in as, as if like that was definitely a risk. But that doesn't seem to. I don't know. I need to look back on that now because that would explain how Hal knows. But then again, I think that would be a bigger talk around people. Aside from Pemulus witnessing it, and. Uh, how mentioning it we don't really see it at any other point between avril and john wayne oh and before we get too far uh so yeah so isn't there like some scene where like john wayne is like in avril's room yeah yeah yeah, yeah. trap or something yeah we 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 see that through pemulus who walks in on them and i've also i've also read that that might be something to do pointing out that avril's son Orin, who she no longer has a relationship with is a football player, so obviously this younger man dressed up in a football helmet and a jock strap. Yeah, might be indicative of uh, some of that. Mm. But yeah, the, the consensus online is Mario is CT and Avril's son, and part of that is they describe uh, CT's grandmother as having a similar deformity to Mario. Oh, so mm. 
Yeah. <sighs> well, yeah, that's uh, that's all I have from my notes. Have either of you read it a second time? Uh, parts of it. Like mm. I, I haven't, I haven't straight like straight through read it again. Mm. Um, which I would, which I would like to. I, I'll, I'll like open it up. I'll kind of do a thing where I'll like open up to random sections every so often and reread them. Um, but I haven't done like a straight read through. Yeah, that's the only way I see myself rereading it is in chunks. What about you, Steve? I've read it three times. Okay. Can you can yeah. you think of any big things we missed in this little episode that would be about like what you would get the second time through? Just that you feel three times better than everyone else <laughs> who hasn't read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's funny you use that wording and you probably meant it, but one of my... Uh, one of the more enlightening things I really love in this book is um, where he talks about just how much being in a sports academy and being ranked all the time fucks up with your perspective. And that to a lot of these kids, psychologically, they think like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm number eight and that guy is ranked number four. So he must feel literally twice as good as me. Yeah. They do think that that status confers to everyone, which, uh, so I, I, I do still, in reading it, I did have an issue with the Enfield kids just because none of them read like children to me at all. Like, mm. maybe a little bit at first when they're just, like, when the four boys are laying there and they're tired, 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 and they're talking like, you know, I wish we could get some time off. Uh, God damn it. I keep, like, unconvincing myself as as i talk because in that conversation they talk about how if we had a little more free time we could get like pussy or or something <laughs> so maybe that's just that they're being run ragged so they can't be real kids yeah i mean i think it's he's definitely describing like a very bizarre childhood mm -hmm. you know in this in this like extreme sports academy that's like so different you know, from, from like, I mean, it's just such, it's such a like strange prism mm -hmm. to think about growing up in, in this kind of environment. But then you're like, Oh, I guess, I mean, people do, you know, th those, they do exist. Um, and, you know, it kind of makes me think of like, you know, Barcelona has this like soccer Academy, La Masia, uh. where, where like, where like Messi went there. And, you know, and they just go around the world. They have, like, scouts that go around the world and, like, find kids. And they're like, yeah, come to our academy, like, 10-year-olds, mm -hmm. maybe even younger. And they're like, come to our academy, like, you show some promise. But, like, most of the kids don't ever make it to, you know, don't, don't ever make it to, like, professional, like, the professional leagues even. The show, as they the call show, it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and so kind of imagine this, like, you spend your whole life and, or, you know, your formative years in these academies. And then at a certain point, you just start to realize like, well, I'm better than every other high schooler, like, but I'm not good enough to be a professional. I'm, you know, I could, I could definitely play college, but like, I'm not going to be on like a professional team and kind of the weirdness of that, you know, that, that kind of life. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, that sort of like, you know, th thinking of like a, like, sharpening blades and like there's only certain you know for every like Lionel Messi there's like a hundred other kids who were like very very good at soccer like good enough to get an invitation 
but didn't actually ever make the like the show. Didn't ever make like the A team. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, guys, I think uh, I think this wraps up the podcast. <laughs> I think this is the end of I Hate Infinite Jest. Um, fuck, do we have anything to say? I don't. I don't know what to do with myself. A little bit here. I think no. I think it has to go on forever. I think right. you, I think you just got to keep recording episodes yeah. every week. Yeah, I think that's going to be diminishing returns at a certain point. God, did I did, did I die of COVID in April and now I have I, I I am in limbo having written come up with this podcast idea just to eternally read infinite jests. Right. Well, I mean, like we're all watching TV endlessly now. Like we're watching Netflix endlessly. We're all living. Oh, we were doing that before this. Yeah, that's true. But now, like, we have nothing. We have nothing else to do. So we're all just. We just have the TV on, and we're all locked in. We're we're living this nightmare. The entertainment. Our... You just you just start it and uh, never. It doesn't stop. It just keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> now you got to do the Pale King. I I might do that at some point. I need to figure out a format. I could. What I'm really. What's really happening here is I would like to. Honestly, the hardest part about this show is booking the guests because when I started this, I figured like I probably have 30 friends in my network who have read this book. And then I interviewed you two and I was out of people I knew personally who had read the book. And then I had to scour the internet and find random people. I had a guy hit me up who went to fucking Amherst with David Foster Wallace that wants to come on the show. And I had to tell him like, I I don't know what I'm going to do. I might do a footnote episode, I guess. But part of me is like, I'm kind of done, dude. Where where were you? Where were you a month ago when I needed you and that right. fucking dickhead from Ohio no showed me? You know, he borderline got kicked out of Amherst. I think, like I think he had to leave for a semester. Oh, DFW really? because he he like he would plagiarize. He, he would write papers for people like in their voices. Like he would get papers that they've written and then he would try to write papers for them in their voices that would still get them an A. But I, I thought he graduated like summa cum laude. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like troubled plagiarist. Uh, he, that might have been from somewhere else. Well, no, he know. wasn't. It, it was like he was writing people like, it's not exactly plagiarism. It's like writing papers for other people. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. exactly, exactly. Which that, I have a friend who would do that for money at UCLA. And it's kind of, a, it's kind of amazing. Like she could, she could be like, all right, what kind of grade do you want to get? And everyone's like an A, and she's like, "Yeah, you get D's. Like all your papers are yeah. D's. Like I'm not like I'll write an A paper for you, but like they're gonna know you cheated. Like why don't why don't we say like a C plus? And she could like actually write a C plus paper. Like she could, you know, she could get whatever grade like the person wanted to get on their paper. That's crazy. I can only write like really brilliantly. Um, <laughs> Out of a curse. I'm not oh, capable. <laughs> I'm not capable of writing C content. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So my my obsession, having read this whole book, it's bleeding into my other stuff. I've been writing a weekly uh, wrestling column, right. humorously recapping AEW Dynamite Wednesdays at eight o'clock on TNT, and mm-hmm. I am putting in so many fucking references to this book just because it's it's one of those things where it's like I know nobody's gonna get it. 
but the three people who get it, it's going to make their fucking day. <laughs> yeah, that's your that's your your niche audience is going to be the combination of David Foster Wallace fans and AEW mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> AEW super fans. See, the one <laughs> the one sub fan base I wish I could have gotten into a little bit more on Twitter. I discovered there's like a whole wing of like alt right people who love this fucking book, really? and I yeah I want. I don't know either. I would have loved it. I had some people comment on there on like a, a tweet I put out and then like got into conversations with some. And then I looked at their things and it's all like, you know, uh, count legal votes only and all snowflake shit. It's like, what, what fucking book are you reading? I don't know. He is surprisingly conservative, David Foster Wallace. Like not like hardcore, but like, just in how he writes black people. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's very, uh, like, he's, I think he's, I like, I, I read, I remember reading that he's, like, fairly conservative right. in his we, political views. We also have to keep in mind that, like, before the current time we live in, like, it was really acceptable, acceptable to be like, eh, I'm, I'm in the middle. I, I like things on both sides. Whereas now it feels like the stakes are so high and, there's so much bad shit happening that like you need to be one side or the other. Like it's almost worse to be in the middle at this point. Yeah, I would, I think you're onto something. That's okay. We're, we're going to have an episode of the new podcast, kill your gods. And I want to have a, an episode on anarchism. I want to have an episode on libertarianism, just like just bring in people who love and enjoy and believe in things very deeply and do my best to just like, how do you justify this? How do you justify this? Just like you are wrong, the podcast and occasionally the book club podcast. I, yeah, and I think, I think why this really works so well is, is it's such, there's something about infinite jest that it's, it's, it's like, it's almost like people, it's like the Talmud or something to certain people, just like, this is the truth. Like, how, how, how can you question the truth? And so I think having a podcast titled I Hate Infinite Jest, it, it does work because you tap into this kind of like, it, it just hits. Like, I mean, that's how we started, you know, with the arguments where you, you were like talking shit on Infinite Jest. And I was like, <laughs> fuck this guy. Like, I don't, I don't like... <laughs> And I got really angry. And then I was like, oh, why, you know, like walking around, like thinking about it and you having like arguments in my head. And then I was like, oh, why, you know, why do, why, why do I care so much? Like, why do mm-hmm. I, why, why do I think it's not okay for somebody to have a different opinion? Well, I, 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 I honestly think like one of the most adult things you can do is have an adult opinion of something you love i don't i don't trust blind love even a little bit so for me it was and that's the other thing is that i've said it a few times in this podcast i used to be fucking alt right at the very beginning of it before it got all fucking racist when it was mainly like conservatism without the religious aspect so, so you're like, you're an alt right hipster you yes were, <laughs> you're, exactly I, I was all right before it was cool yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, before it was cool. <laughs> I thought I thought all lives mattered before 
Whatever this is. <laughs> um, but no, the, the fact that like, that's the thing. I've had these feelings about a book before that all the answers are in this book and this is truth. And how can you say anything, anything about truth? The problem is that fucking book was Atlas Shrugged and I, I got around it because I grew up and I experienced things a little differently. Not to say that the infinite jest is like Atlas Shrugged. It's just as long, but um, yeah, it's so uh, I, I, I don't know. Same kind, I, I feel similar though, in that people like what you're saying, where people hold up Atlas Shrugged as like their, their, their Bible, yeah. their guide for the world. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I, I have such a great idea. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. There's a comedian in the scene who is like diehard libertarian and defends it to the death. So what I want to do is I want to have him on a podcast and just bring on Roger Snare of Roger and Linda, who is also libertarian, but like ah. a pants shitting lunatic. And <laughs> like, let Roger explain how libertarianism works. And then you tell me, Adam, like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. What Roger just said right there. I, I, anything to add? Like, just <laughs> two libertarians arguing over <laughs> Jesse. Jesse hates libertarianism. Is the next uh, is the next podcast? That's yeah. right. But uh, to wrap it up now, I would like to thank you guys for appearing on this podcast, this individual podcast, and helping inspire this entire series of fucking podcasts. Because I'm. I just want to say you're welcome for like having, like having introduced you to this book. Uh, I feel responsible for uh, anything that you got out of it. Like I feel like you owe me a lot. Um, anything you got out of the book or the experience, um, I feel like you owe to me and Dan Ostrov. You are forever in our debt. That's fair. Um, You've and, really grown as a person thanks to this book. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Has he though? Has he? <laughs> I mean, my life has changed so much as I start. I'm, I'm fucking engaged. You're now. engaged. Most, you know, because of the book, I would say, had you not read that the book, you wouldn't be engaged. You. Oh well, that, that that's what Steve pointed out before we started recording yeah. that me and my fiance met because on her profile it said all the things she likes and it said if you love Infinite Jest this probably isn't gonna work and I sent her a message saying like hey I'm down for all the other stuff you know whiskey and veganism and all that but when you said fuck Infinite Jest I wish I could have popped that through the computer and kissed you how about you and I date for a few weeks before falling out with each other and that part never happened and now i'm engaged because of infinite jest because of infinite jest so thank you What's for that the, i feel like now you have to do readings from this book at your wedding <laughs> maybe maybe like what's what's the thing about like f falling in love with someone you've never even met could do that there like until i Ooh. met you or you know what maybe maybe the trick is now every book i cover i get another fiance I like this is, that. How, this is how I get into polygamy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Just start calling. Uh, just start calling Perry the, the pea goat, and uh, the the pea goat. Yeah. I was always goat. I was always unsure whether to pronounce it the pea goat or the P G O A T. I think either way is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, P G O A T works better in the parody songs I've been writing. One of which will be for this song. So, guys, that's it. We're done. Uh, remind us where we can find you. On the internet. Yep. On okay. the internet. <laughs> find Dan Ostrov and Steve Clark on the internet where the we all live. 
being entertained forever and ever. I hope you have been entertained forever and ever by this podcast. Uh, we will, pr provided I am not just living in a computer representation of purgatory, we will not be back next week with more Infinite Jest. But um, yeah, this has been Infinite Jest. Thanks for listening, Ashraf Clark. Thank you for setting me on this thing that has mind-meltingly been the most successful endeavor I've ever set out on comedically, and uh, people still don't respect me. So, in the scene. So there we go. That's all I needed. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. All right. I will end this like I end every episode. I'm going to stop recording, but I'm going to keep talking to you guys and tell you how much I love you. Bye.